Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the only podcast hosted by MPEX organizers coming at you from New York City and Los Angeles, California. My name is Desmond Bowie and I am joined by my co-host Chris Bell. So you know that Troy also has a podcast, right? Troy has a podcast. Troy does not have an, an Elixir podcast. Troy has a cocktails podcast. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you should. everyone should check that out. Troy has a great cocktails podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. Troy is also an organizer at MPEX, so uh, I was just trying to disprove Desmond's fact, but I guess you were more specific than I thought. Did I? I don't actually remember what I just said, but... We're just questioning everything now. That's the way we're starting the show out. In the spirit of Elixir Talk corrections, I stand corrected. <laughs> so, how are you doing, Desmond? I'm doing pretty well. It's, uh... Yeah? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Stepping into my consulting lifestyle... Catching up on some errands, playing around with uh, Phoenix Live View, hanging out with my pinball machine, and nice. planting the garden. You know, catching up on a couple sounds- of side projects. Uh, the refectory that I mentioned last week is slowly taking shape, and a couple other project ideas. I've also been pretty busy. This is a thing I want to plug at the top with the uh, Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, which we announced a couple of weeks ago, and is. Getting off the ground. It's pretty exciting to see. So I've been working on the marketing committee. Wait, let me take a step back. The Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is a new nonprofit dedicated to spreading um, or doing foundational work on the base technologies of the Erlang ecosystem, which support Erlang, Elixir, LFE, Affini, and anything else that targets the beam, and promoting the activities of the community. So there hasn't been a lot of there hasn't been a lot of nonprofit work to really move everything forward there was the old um it's an old erlang foundation but this is sort of a new push uh, now that elixir is getting off the ground and we're looking for people to help us out so if you're interested in being a member please check out our website at elref.org that's earlyf.org um, we're still getting details off the ground about how you become a member, but the idea is that you join working groups that is that are each working on different areas of uh, interest. One is tools, one is interoperability. Um, the marketing one that I serve on is another. But it's a great opportunity to get involved and uh, to meet other people in the community. So it's been great. Like, you know, marketing is just about getting the word out, uh, getting the website together promoting the foundation and the work that people are doing so that's been a You're lot of totally fun. nailing that job right now so great great work a plus you know yeah <laughs> the podcast makes it easy yes that i guess yeah um so what 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 can uh, folks get involved with so you said they're like working groups but what what's the actual like work involved and what where's the output of this going to go honestly i wish i had a better answer we're we're still figuring that out since we have mostly been busy with like putting together the foundation talking to the irs about 501c3 status uh getting the site together what's the mechanism for joining what are sponsorship levels so right now i can say if you're interested please join our mailing list more details will come shortly we're finalizing what it means to join a working group and what the different um sponsorship levels are if your company is interested in supporting some of this work uh, we need support from organizations as well. But for individuals, I would say if you think – if you see an area that needs to be worked on um, that would benefit the whole ecosystem, submit a working group proposal. Um, get in touch Get in touch with me directly. Honestly, right now is the best way 
to do this, I'll send you a template that we've been working with for um, proposing a working group. And yeah, let's talk. Like in the absence of official official guidelines, uh, talk to me directly and I can help you move forward until we get something up. So it's still, you know, pretty bootstrappy right now. We're hoping to have something more official in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, if you're interested, please reach out. There's no reason to wait because things are happening. It's a great time to be involved. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes as well so you can uh, get involved yeah. via that. Cool. So cool. And uh, one other plug. Got to do it. Do it. It's it's MPEX conference season, so we got to plug it. What's the MPEX conference? Um, MPEX is the premier Elixir conference, the the premier regional Elixir conference. I will caveat. Uh, although I think you know, if between a few of us here, we would say it is the premier Elixir pr- conference as well. It is hosted in a jazz club in Soho, in the great city of New York, and it's a one day single track conference where you can find a ton of excellent content really kind of great speakers who are getting into some really like good technical detail you will get a ton of value out of it it's a pretty cheap conference it's aimed so individuals can go without having uh for your having to have your company pay for it um so tickets right now are on sale uh it's on may the 18th in new york city and we would love to see you there desmond will be there i will be there you can I, I think I'm actually gonna be emceeing again. Yeah. So that will be a treat. Um for for those that think that that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I, maybe only my mother. I don't know. We'll see. Um yeah, so that so that's happening and we're excited to have you and we're really excited about the lineup. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But as always, it's mpex.co forward slash NYC. You can get your tickets right now. And all of the speakers have been announced as well. So you can find everything on our website. What's uh, so, what's your favorite talk or the one you're looking forward to the most? Oh, I've got to plug. I've got to plug Billy from Frame.io's talk because he is talking about uh, uh, basically about like the macro system within Elixir. And he's trying to answer the question, is Elixir just Lisp? Because... Um, everything in the AST kind of gets compiled to a bunch of like nested lists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be an interesting talk, and he's going to do a bit of an exploration of other macro systems to put elixirs in context to the, the broader ecosystem as well. So should be really awesome, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, sounds cool. So talking of that, we actually have a special guest on the podcast today who is also an MPEX organizer as well. So you've got three MPEX organizers on the podcast in one place, which I think is the first time ever, right? Well, we're not all in one place, as you're fond of pointing out. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's a remote It's a remote focused and remote first podcast, right? But it's one place in here. our hearts. Cool. So today we have Sophie Di Benedetto on the podcast. She is a, a, a developer at the Flatiron School and also an MPEX organizer as well. So thank you for joining us today, Sophie, and hello. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Were you really nervous that I was going to cock that up a second time? Or? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty low stakes since we're recording and you can kind of edit out uh, mispronouncing my name as many times as you care to. So for those listening at home, Chris introduced Sophie a first time and he blew it and we edited it out. So that's why he just said a second time, even though you didn't hear him do it a first time. 
Yeah, and uh, you're just getting to see how the the sausage is made. So it's uh, it's a very exciting time here on the Elixir Talk podcast today. Fascinating. So welcome, Sophie. So let's get straight to the hard questions. What is, from a layman's perspective, what is the reputation of the Elixir Talk podcast? <laughs> I love that your first question for your guest is about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, pretty positive. You know, when I told a couple friends that I was coming to chat with you guys tonight, most of them did not have, you know, just total blank stares on their faces. So, you know, positive. I'll take it. I'll take it. Great. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent news. Um, so cool. So, uh, how long have you been to the Flatiron School? Uh, I've been there now, this time around, I've been there for going on a year. Uh, I actually was a Flatiron student maybe five years ago when I graduated the program. I joined the teaching team. So I was working as an instructor, uh, writing curriculum, working on things here and there. Then after about a year or two of that, I decided I wanted to go write code every day. That's kind of why I went to Flatiron to begin with, to learn how to be a developer. Now I wanted to go get paid to do exactly that. So left Flatiron, joined the team over at TuneCore, which is actually where I met Troy, another MPEX organizer. Stuck out there for about a year or two, and now I'm back on the engineering team at the Flatiron School. Cool. And what yeah. have you been working on? Lots and lots of Elixir. I'm surprised that the Flatiron School is doing a lot of Elixir. So I, I wouldn't say that we're... I'm curious to hear why you're surprised. We're not teaching Elixir, but we are using it a lot uh, on the engineering side. For what? Why not teach? Why are you not teaching? Uh, excellent question. I would love to be teaching Elixir. Please, <laughs> let's talk about that. There is, you know, a couple of us that are plotting how we can get some Elixir content before the eyes of our students. So maybe that'll happen in the next year or so. But we've been using Elixir to do some not-so-interesting things and some super-interesting things. On the less interesting, which is just to say slightly more standard side, we've been using Elixir to build out internal tools that have helped our organization scale. So we're kind of slowly, slowly moving away from actual teams of humans spending a lot of human hours doing things like processing admissions and invoices and registering students to building nice concurrent systems in Elixir that handle that kind of stuff for us. But where I think the real fun is, is our in-browser IDE or integrated development environment. So, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like Repl.it or any of these in-browser REPLs that you can work with. What we provide for our students is not that. It is way cooler than that. It is like a full tunnel or channel, if you will, to a virtual machine running for you, the student, so that you are interacting with our content in the browser as if you were actually devving on your local machine. And the reason behind this was to really lower the barrier to entry for a lot of beginner programming students who couldn't quite get over that hump of setting up their local machine, understanding how to do things like install Ruby, get Git working, what's homebrew, um, things that you up until now, kind of need to write code uh, in that real kind of professional environment, but you don't actually need to just start writing code and running tests and seeing how things work. So we abstracted that all away. We run that for you on the back end, and we leverage uh, Phoenix channels on the front end to give you this in-browser terminal, file tree, file editor that you can use to interact with that VM. 
Whoa, that's cool. How, how the hell does that work? Oh, so many things. So yeah. I'll tell you, it works in a couple different ways. We've actually been working on a newer version of it uh, for a company that we've been partnering with for a little while now called 2U, which uh, is big in the education space. So the version of it that we've been working on for 2U, I think is really cool because it's leveraging Kubernetes. We're just deploying it onto uh, EKS and AWS. So the TLDR version is that we've got this React app running in the front end that represents the terminal file tree files that you're editing. And it's using Phoenix's Socket.js library to expose a channel in between your terminal file tree actual files that you're editing and a Docker container that we're running in a Kubernetes pod. So we spin up one Kubernetes pod per sort of student assignment combo. We open up this React app that gives you this ability to send messages over channels to the pod that's running. And then we're uh, routing that request to a separate Phoenix app that's running side by side with the student's Docker container in the pod. And this is acting this Phoenix app as the go between between the front end and the student's Docker container. That's actually sort of their virtual environment for them to complete a given assignment. So is there, how much control do they have over this machine? Like, could you just run in your, um, in your REPL, like system command or is there yeah, some absolutely sort of good. Yep. You can absolutely run a system command. We, we're in the process of tightening it up a little bit. Um, you're, they're kind of, they're working with a, a terminal session that has some limited permissions, so they can't do any damage. And because it's one student per pod, they can't break out of the pod. We have some network policies that we've applied to the pod itself, so they can't really wreak any havoc on the infrastructure. Um, could they blow up their own pod? Probably. Um, can we recover from that? Because Elixir and Phoenix are so cool. Yes, we can. That is a great answer. So, uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. So, is it that that whole system has that been developed in house? And how how many uh, engineers do you have on the team right now? Yeah, so we've been building on top of the existing version of this system, which we run a little less efficiently on DigitalOcean for our own students. We've been building it into the EKS infrastructure together with uh, 2U, this other company we've partnered with. So it's been. It's actually, honestly, it's been an amazing engagement. We've been working on this iteration of the project for about 12 weeks. We have built so much more than I ever thought possible within the 12 weeks. It's a combination of a handful of developers from the Flatiron side, from the 2U side, one dedicated uh, DevOps engineer who has a lot of experience working with Kubernetes and working with EKS. But it's been it's been a really cool couple of weeks. We've really flown through a lot of this stuff, and I've been very impressed with everyone involved. Nice. And so what do the students actually learn at Flatiron now, like uh, in terms of languages and what are on these Docker containers that you're running? Yeah, we've got a couple of different tracks that a student can follow. So we have a uh, full stack, what do we call it now? We've changed the branding a little bit recently. I don't want to mess it up. Full stack software engineering uh, immersive that you can take in person or online. And that covers uh, HTML, CSS, Git, Ruby, Rails, uh, SQL, things like that. Then we get into JavaScript, React, and Redux. And you build a couple of projects. You build out your portfolio over the course of the curriculum. 
We also have a data science offering where people learn data science. That's as specific as I am able to be when it comes to data science. You know, all the science of data, they learn it. So depending on which track or which course, which curriculum you're going through, you might get a, a Docker container that's set up to do, um, you know, a Ruby assignment, a Rails assignment, a React assignment, or you might get a different version of that Docker container, which is set up to execute our data science curriculum, which actually runs on Jupyter Notebooks. So that's what Python. So you mentioned that you, uh, you're not currently teaching Elixir. So I'm curious what the calculus is around. I mean, obviously, the, I think the schools have curricula that are centered around, well, what is the what's the market demanding? Because they don't want to charge students for tuition and then graduate them into a field that uh, where it's difficult to find employment. So what's what's the calculus around at what point when when do we reach a tipping point and when does it make sense to offer an Elixir program? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think in order to answer it, I want to speak a little bit about why we when we first started out, you know, years ago, why we chose Ruby. So what I love about Ruby is that it's really eloquent and in the sense that it speaks for itself. So if you speak English, even if you don't speak English all that well, you can probably read some relatively basic Ruby code and kind of get what's going on. And I think that's a really nice thing to be able to give students when they're jumping into code for the first time. I think a lot of us who came from other careers, came from different backgrounds, didn't study computer science, definitely thought of programming as something that was like really totally unapproachable, you know, super science heavy, I've got to know math, something like that. So to be able to bring to our students something that reads like English, something that they could puzzle through and something that they can kind of map to their understanding of the world is, is really powerful to be able to do. So I think... Um, it's, there's so many great math quotes, but isn't one of them something like um, something about how programming should be fun to do, languages should be easy to write, and he says things like, uh, or there's a Ruby community saying like, maths is nice, and so are we, Minswan. Uh, and that's kind of an ethos, and that's a community that we felt would be really beginner-friendly and that we really wanted to be able to bring to our students. So... Also, I think at the time, and you're thinking back, like, I don't know, seven or eight years at this point, I don't think there's really a functional language out there that offers these handholds and these kind of grips and these stepping stones to beginners the way that Ruby did and does. Now that Elixir has come on the scene, I would be totally comfortable arguing that a lot of the things that make Ruby such a great language for beginners, uh, Elixir has as well. And I think, obviously, one of the key differences is that Ruby is object-oriented and Elixir is functional and, and a topic that I don't have very well-formed opinions on, but I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on is what, what do you get when you learn a functional language first? Like, how does that change the way that you approach programming? How does that change the way that you approach application and system designs? Um, I think exploring that question is going to help us and by us, I mean me and perhaps a few other interested parties make the case that we should teach Elixir to our students. I, I'm actually super curious about that as well. I'm, I have not seen it where it's like a functional first kind of language to learn. And um, Sophie, I was thinking about like you're teaching full stack, right? So you're, they're doing JavaScript as well at the same time. I, so that, that's a thing that I have seen happen when I've been teaching Elixir is like 
the difference from going from Elixir to JavaScript is actually quite a big jump compared to going from like Ruby to JavaScript, you know? And I know like people invented CoffeeScript literally to make that jump like less, but even so it's like Ruby to JavaScript is, you know, you're still, uh, JavaScript isn't particularly like object oriented, but there are now classes and you can kind of find your way around. And, you know, I think it's a bit more familiar than, uh, you know, going from a functional language to, to JavaScript. So I think it's interesting that you mentioned the difficulty of transitioning to learning JavaScript after learning Ruby or Elixir or whatever previous language you may have learned. I remember feeling very frustrated when I was a student at Flatiron. I spent a couple of weeks and months learning Ruby, finally got to a point where I was very comfortable, felt like I had pushed through this barrier and that I wasn't going to feel frustrated, upset, confused, and lost ever again because now I knew a language. Then you show up the next day and you're learning JavaScript and you feel extremely frustrated, lost, and confused all over again. So I, I'm sort of of the mind that I I want to push my students to feel that way. I don't want anyone to get comfortable and I don't want anyone to think that there's a point in time at which they're done learning and they're done being frustrated. I think once you get to that point, you basically, you're telling yourself that you're not going to learn anymore and it's going to be pretty hard to kind of keep adapting and, and to be successful as an engineer. So I wonder if the quote difficulty of transitioning to something like JavaScript from Elixir uh, is is necessarily a point against it. So I think one of the one of the challenges of learning programming is you're trying to internalize a mental model of how a computer works, um, and at the same time learn a language for expressing how to get the computer to do a certain thing. Um, my first like sort of programming language was, I guess I looked at JavaScript back in the nineties, but I didn't really think about it that much. My first real programming language was C++ and man, it sucked. It was just miserable. For example, you have, uh, a print line, print line command, which you can call with a string or you have C out and you can like pipe stuff to C out pipe is a, a double arrow. And I remember saying, like, well, you know, what's the difference? Why would I use one or the other? And the instructor gave me an unsatisfying response. But the whole experience of learning that language or, you know, taking a class in that language anyway was, but why is there this other way of doing this thing? And why am I, you know, calling it with a, why do I have to prefix this variable with an asterisk and like whatever, whatever. And there's just so many edges and just the surface area is so large that that becomes a challenge in itself beyond just like, what's memory? You know, how does program execution work? And even things as simple as calling functions when you have to start describing like pass by reference, pass by value, and um, naming your parameters and uh, different ways of creating these things. Like, are you calling a function? Are you calling a method? Passing arguments? Is it acting on that instance? So... Uh I, I know where you're coming from. I think all languages have idiosyncrasies, right? Like the, the same is true in Elixir as well, by the way. Like I think that there are parts where people bang their head against the language a bit. Like uh, just today I was teaching a group and we've been going through some different Elixir kind of learning exercises, building a Phoenix API. And some of the parts that they're, they like get stumped on a lot are the kind of syntax where you're passing a function, uh, you're doing like the capture syntax for a function. And they're like, why is there two ways of doing that, right? Why can I do it with an arity at the end versus like 
capturing it or why can I do an anonymous function and do it as well? It's like that. I think, I think there are rough edges in all languages. Um, definitely. I think like, and Sophie, I'm really curious to get your take on this as well. It's like Elixir is like, you've got two learning curves for me. It's like, you've got to understand, like if you're coming from like a background where you've done some programming before, you've got to understand like the difference between OO and then functional and all the, the kind of differences there. And then you, you've also got to understand the like the language, the syntax, everything like that. And then I always say that the second like learning curve is always processes and OTP. And it feels like that one is actually very steep. Like I, I really believe that it's a, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to grok about virtual machines, processes, concurrency, all of this stuff. And like, I can imagine in the Ruby world, you know, you're, you're not necessarily like not teaching that to begin with, but you're kind of, you know, you're focusing on like, this is the language, we can do all these things in a single threaded way. And you don't have to think about any of the the kind of the complexities there. Yeah, actually, I, I totally agree that those are the two sort of twin challenges of entering into Elixir, especially coming from another language, especially coming from an OL language. And I think uh, one thing that I've been experiencing lately is like, I feel like I've finally gotten comfortable understanding processes, using processes, leveraging message passing. And so now my tendency is to overreach for it. Like Everything's a message. Everything's a process. And I realized today I was writing a whole gen server that was just like sending messages back and forth to itself for absolutely no reason. Nothing in this module needed to be a gen server. Uh, got rid of it. And so I think... I think that's okay, though. I mean, I think that's kind of like a natural function of starting to get more comfortable with more complex topics. You get excited about them. You want to apply them to everything. Uh, and that's actually one reason why I'm looking forward to one of the talks that's going to be happening at MPEX in May. Uh, a coworker of mine, Meryl, who's awesome, is going to be giving a talk on how we leveraged gen servers when we actually needed them to solve a very slow running process and make it really concurrent, really fast and really uh, fault tolerant so that it could recover nicely. And part of what she's going to discuss is what makes this an, a good use case for these tools, kind of highlighting our tendency as people that are new to Elixir and all of a sudden so excited about concurrency and so excited about processes to just throw them at everything. Um, but I also wonder, would the obstacles that we've identified coming likely from an OO background feel as challenging to somebody if that person was learning Elixir as their first language. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to know if that would be a challenge for those people. I I I don't know. I've never taught like a group like raw like just functional off the bat, you know, like and even at school like we learned functional but it was later, you know. So um and I know there are like there are programs that are doing functional from the offset. I'm I, I'm really really interested now to know what what it you know what the kind of result is as a bunch uh, as like a cohort that's going through that and then how you look at other languages as well right like what what lens you view those languages through be very interesting if I had like a hypothetical five year old child which I do not and I had to teach them programming I would teach them functional because it's it's just again there's there's little surface area it's very clean. You have functions, you call them, you pass them arguments, you save the results into variables, and that's it. And you can get pretty far with that, just uh, just with single-threaded. I mean, you don't have to use concurrency. 
on the beam and you work with that for a year or two, get used to solving problems, get used to thinking in this functional way about immutable data and um, pipe chains and so forth. And that's how you think about solving problems with code. And then once that's safely under your belt, then you can start looking at, oh, well, see, when you're doing this type of problem, this benefits from concurrency. So we'll just spin up a bunch of actors and then you get into well, what are processes and that sort of thing. Um, but I think you can get pretty far. It was just single threaded, like, here's how you write a program. Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, as we all said, I think before, like, Elixir is a great language to learn as a beginner, right? Like, there's a lot of good things in the language for beginners. There's a lot of great tooling, like, fantastic documentation. And, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of strengths to it as as that. Um, actually, with that being said, um, Sophie, do you want to tell us a bit about your involvement with Elixir School and, and um, talk to us a bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So Elixir School is an open source online Elixir curriculum. And a couple things about it that a lot of people don't know. It is entirely free. So there's lots and lots of content on there. We strive to cover all the topics and are looking for contributions to help us do that. And it's also heavily translated into so, so many languages. So one of the real missions behind Elixir School is to make this content and this learning available outside of the English-speaking community. So we have so many awesome, hardworking, dedicated translators uh, who collaborate on this from around the world, translating it into Japanese and Italian and Greek and so many, so many different languages. So I actually, gosh, how did I get involved in Elixir School? One of my coworkers was a collaborator and I sort of heard about it through him. I wrote a blog post for them and I just kind of got sucked in from there, but not in a bad way. It's just a really open, friendly community. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised at every turn how collaborative people are, how helpful, how excited they are by new contributions, how much positive and helpful feedback you get whenever you open a blog post or a new lesson. So it's, it's a really cool community to be a part of. And one of the things that's really nice is I think there's lots of different ways for people to plug in and contribute, even or especially if you yourself are an Elixir beginner, the content is really geared towards a really broad range of learners. So we need to cover topics for the absolute beginner. We need to cover some of the more advanced stuff. We have room to write lessons in the standard curriculum as well as blog posts on a variety of topics. So if you're just starting to get your feet wet with Elixir, I bet you have something to contribute. And if you speak literally any language, please translate something for us. You don't even have to write any code. Uh, we welcome any and all contributions. Awesome. And can you tell us about some of the things you've written for them recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I've done a couple of fun things recently. Um, one of our blog posts that just came out was written by a coworker of mine. You guys probably know or you may know Bobby Grayson um, wrote a great post that for me finally really demystified the different types of supervisors uh, in Elixir, the different strategies you can apply to them and what impact each of those things have with a really nice, clear, concise example. And speaking from the per point of view of somebody that's, you know, worked with lots of different types of supervisors, applied these different strategies and just kind of blindly reached for different ones at different times and then kind of forgotten everything about why I chose to use one. Seeing this all in one place was, was really cool and helpful. Uh, and we also published an article about a week or two ago at this point that I wrote about LiveView. I got really excited, I'm sure, as did 
many people the weekend it came out, decided to play around with a little bit, wrote up just kind of a quick how-to for anybody that just wanted to see all in one place how to get up and running. Um, That was really cool. I learned a lot, and I have an update to that coming out hopefully this week, so keep your eyes peeled about integrating, um, integrating, gosh, my words are gone integrating Phoenix pups up. So how can we leverage live view, not just for real time for one client, but how can we share those real time updates across a set of users? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, just want to say that we love Bobby. He, yes, Bobby is uh, a great addition to this community. So we're thankful for him and for all the work you've been doing as well. It's like awesome to see that, um, you know, there's so much thought going into helping beginners get up and running with Elixir and and more advanced subjects as well and topics. I think it's it's really great to see. Yeah, it's it's been really cool to be a part of it. One other thing I just wanted to share briefly about Elixir Squad, I don't have too many details yet, uh, is that we have a couple of things in the works partnering up with uh, Elixir Conf this year at the end of summer in Colorado. So this week, you guys can look out for a blog post announcing some pretty fun migrations coming up this year with them cool cool so i'm curious uh on that note what your opinion of live view is you dropped one of the first uh blog posts after uh it was released with a quick walkthrough so obviously you're excited about it but i wanted to give you a chance to tell us i don't just dig a little deeper about your experiences with the library and what problems you think it solves and maybe you think where it could be better or stands to improve Yeah, absolutely. So I can definitely only speak from the point of view of somebody that's played around with it uh, inside projects. I don't know if anyone in the world has it out in production yet. I'd certainly be curious to find out. It's pretty new still. But what I have been really loving about it is how little JavaScript I get to write. So not to just totally bash JavaScript, but one of the things that has been just kind of bogging me down in my professional life lately is wading through just an increasingly complicated Redux app that hooks up with Phoenix channels, uh, in particular around the in-browser terminal experience that I was describing to you guys earlier. So personally, I've been feeling a little bit burnt out on some of these front-end frameworks, uh, not to say that they don't have their place. So initially what caught my eye was just kind of the shiny newness of like real-time updates, no JavaScript, sign me up. So I got excited when it came out, but it was just so easy to use. You can write, you know, two lines of front-end code and that code is more or less boilerplate. You can write 15 lines of back-end code and you have real-time updates uh, for free happening between your back end and your front end. I think it just opens up a lot of possibility for the kind of experiences and interactions that we can expose to our users and the kind of data that we can expose to them. And it's just really cool to kind of see that come together, leveraging like these socket connections that Phoenix makes it really easy to work with, uh, you know, leveraging all the cool things that we get through Elixir in Phoenix. So do you think that that terminal app could be rewritten using live view, which is like the million dollar yeah. question? No, I had a whole debate about this with uh, another coworker of mine that you guys may know, Stephen Nunez as well. I was like super excited about live view. I said, death to this Redux app. I want to rip it out. Let's replace it with live view. And he kind of like slowed my roll a little bit. You know, we use the terminal JS javascript library to get these nice uh, actual terminal experiences uh, and the look and feel of a real terminal in the in the browser 
That being said, I'm still of the opinion that you could probably get the basic functionality with Live View. Uh, and if I had sort of carte blanche at work, I would love to spend like a week or so just hacking at that. But I, I really do think from, again, what I've seen so far, which has been mostly in the context of a toy app, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think there's probably a lot of JavaScript code that we all are sitting on that we could get rid of with Live View. Hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think there's a there's a lot of probably JavaScript where there doesn't need to be that much JavaScript. Yeah. And probably quite complex JavaScript as well. For, for, for like, rightly so sometimes, but yeah. Honestly, yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting to hear uh, your thoughts on that, and especially as you've played around with it a bit more. Um, it, and it will be interesting to see how this thing develops a bit more and like see again like like you said like who's actually doing it in production like who's who ship I'm sure someone out there has shipped a thing and they're like you know we've got 10,000 users using live view right now um, yeah I'm sure that's I, I'd thing. like to hear it yeah me too <laughs> yeah because I think yeah I'm, I'm just excited to keep playing around with it and I know that one of the things that I started wondering pretty quickly once I set it up initially was how can I get PubSub working in the context of my life? Like I already have channels. I'm already able to broadcast to a set of subscribing clients so that my users can share these live updates. Um, and then I kind of started feeling like live view sort of took that away from me. Like it didn't have a nice, easy built-in way for me to um, broadcast out like you would in a channel. Uh, but I, I dug around a little bit and I know there's a couple ways to do this. And I think Desmond, you may have played around with a slightly different approach, but you can use Phoenix's PubSub library directly. So that's what I ended up doing, plugging that into the live view. And again, with the addition of like maybe six lines of code, I was broadcasting out uh, to a set of subscribing clients. So I feel like, is that a shortcoming? Is that a point of weakness? I'm wondering what the right way is to do it. I'd be curious to see what maybe somebody like Chris McCord has to say, because uh, it certainly wasn't sitting right there in the documentation. I don't know if this is like the intended use case for Live View, for example. Well, Chris, if you're listening, you know, get in touch with us and get in touch with Sophie and uh, t tell us, tell us what the, the, the way Set is. Set the record but... straight. Yeah, uh, but it's, I mean, it sounds like PubSub. If you're doing like subscribing in these places, it sounds totally reasonable. Yeah, if you want to like um, publish to subscribers, this might be <laughs> a reasonable pattern. Yeah, nailed it. Um, so, Sophie, I have I have a couple more questions, and I think the biggest one for me is like, how do we do more to get more people in Elixir? Like, what what's your perspective on that? You're you're you know you're in quite a unique position here. You work at a boot camp. You're also helping out with Elixir School. You're clearly very dedicated to the community, like, and you're you're co-organizing at MPEX with us as well. Um, yeah, tell us tell us what more we can do. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question, and I think it kind of circles back to your earlier question on what is that tipping point where we can start, you know, as the Flatiron School or perhaps as as other boot camps start putting Elixir content in front of our students, and I think there has to be a demand for it. So the next question is, how do we agitate, how do we create a little bit of a demand uh, from beginner developers regarding this community? And I actually think there's a lot of things that we can do. So I think things like the NYC Elixir meetup is really key. I think we can encourage more people to attend. I think we can reach out to and maybe even partner with uh, schools here in the city to encourage students and teachers to show up and 
check it out and get involved. I think uh, things like MPEX offering, uh, you know, early bird tickets to students and things like that, which we sometimes do if folks reach out to us, is, I think is awesome and super helpful. Uh, it's super early days for Elixir School in this, but we are definitely kicking around ideas for how to support people who are beginners, people who have fewer resources to get out there and attend conferences and travel and do these kinds of things, um, access some of those resources and get connected with the wider community. So I think there's sort of concrete things like that that folks are already doing and I would love to see more of. I think beyond that, though, one of the other things that makes Ruby such a great place to start for somebody that's totally new to programming is the community. There's a lot of beginners in the Ruby community. It's a really friendly open community full of people that want to help again you know the min swan ethos um and i think that that's something that really supports people to get involved encourages people to learn and it helps people not get scared away or get scared off when they become frustrated because it's really easy to look around and find a helping hand whether it's like a stranger at a meetup or a hacker hours or somebody on stack overflow or somebody's blog post that you came across so one thing i've been encouraging um, the folks that i work with to do especially people that are a little bit earlier on in either their elixir learnings or their career as an engineer is please write all the elixir blog posts you cannot be pedantic enough about this you could not cover enough topics like think about how great it is when you google how to something something in rails and think about how frustrating it can often be i'm sure for many of us when we google something for elixir or phoenix or some random elixir or erlang utility um we have actually there's another elixir school post that was written by uh, a coworker of mine, Merrill, again, who's going to be one of our MPEX speakers, about using the uh, using Elixir with Kafka, using the Kaffee Coffee Library. And I encouraged her to write it, and she was inspired to write it after we had to figure out how the heck to use Elixir and Kafka. And Googling it only came up with like links to Kafka's Metamorphosis and a cafe in Prague where Kafka used to drink coffee. And it's like, there's nothing out here on this. Uh, so amping up those resources, I think is something that I would really love to see. And I want everybody who is struggling to learn Elixir or coming up against bumps in the road to write all the things. There is still something that I Google that returns like a World of Warcraft, like oh, Elixir absolutely. thing. Oh, absolutely. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right? Yes. What is it? Now it's escaping me. Yeah, it's like it, it's like elixir of something, yes, and you're like, totally okay, yep. yeah, that's definitely not what I'm looking for. But no. thank you. Um, but yeah, I t- I totally agree. I think we could do we could definitely be doing more there. You know, um, I th- I think there's a lot there's uh, from you know th- this is our fourth year of doing MPEX and seeing four years of this community grow, especially in New York, has been really great. And there's more and more companies doing it, which means there's more and more problems being solved, right? Mm-hmm. So we should see more and more blog posts. Um, and I think there has been some. I think we could all probably do more for that. And also, like, more evangelism to other companies as well. Um, I know Desmond has, in the past, gone and roadshowed Elixir to whoever he can have him um, attend his like their company. And I think things like that are really good as well. Like, you know, building up that groundswell internally, doing more presentations back to your teams, whatever it takes to uh, hopefully change the perception and drum up some more interest. So, Yeah, and one, one thing I'll plug a little bit is that we have a committee on the technology team at Flatiron called the Speak Easy Committee, 
Um, we have a number of committees that all have equally awesome names, but this one is pretty <laughs> aptly named. Uh, so it's, it's run by a couple of my coworkers that are really all about supporting other people to get out there and speak and meetups and conferences. And they have a little event today where they got us together and we especially sat down and focused on coming up with Elixir topics to submit to various meetups, um, including NYC Elixir. But I'm personally not aware of any other meetups that focus on Elixir other than that, or even that focus on functional languages. So I'm curious if you guys have any ideas, because I've got a number of people that are ready to get out there and, and start talking. Well, there's, of course, the Elixir LA meetup, which I happen to go <laughs> So, But are you going to fly people out? I mean, I assume that the Elixir LA meetup will fly people out and uh, right? host yeah. people on Desmond's couch or underneath his <laughs> pinball machine. I hate to break it to you all. The Elixir LA meetup is not MPEX LA. Uh, we'll fly you out for MPEX, but not for the meetup. Yeah. But this is actually something that the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and our marketing group in particular is charged with doing. And one of one of our goals is not just to promote the technology within the Erlang and Elixir communities, is to go outside of that and tell people, hey, you know, there's cool stuff happening in here. Please pay attention. And my opinion has always been that the best way to convince people of that is to show them the goods. Seeing a, a three-line Haskell solution that is incomprehensible, I think doesn't really impress anyone. Showing someone a five-line Elixir solution that is expressive and fast and updates in real time, you know, gives you that wow moment. And like, as much as we like to think that as developers, we're rational people, we are not. We are meatbag humans underneath it all. And we respond to things that are emotionally moving. And I think something that's technically impressive can create a visceral reaction i think that's what we should go for yeah that, the hard thing though is like so i was having a conversation with someone literally last week that was like we we're talking about technology choices for their startup right and we we're like they're they're a fan of elixir they're like oh i really want to do it in elixir but then you know the ceo is like what if you leave like how are we going to hire any elixir engineers and how are we going to make this thing happen if you're not there mm-hmm. and it, it is as much as I don't want to say this, it is still a business risk for certain places and certain companies, right? It's it is not. It's not like there's not demand from the community, and there are you know there are ways to attract talent. And I think the fact that we're in like a bit of a niche uh, ecosystem means that we have an advantage in attracting talent in some ways. But there are still issues there where you know the pool of talent for Node, for Ruby, for Python is just so much larger right now than than elixir it is and there's also a lot more crap so i'm going to take the opposite (laughs) point of view here and say maybe we don't want it to get that big because i don't want to end up like the javascript community no i want i honestly i think i'd like a key result for all of us doing all of the stuff we do around community is trying to move you know that like programming language benchmark where they benchmark like number of repos with number of stack overflow questions like I don't know what that one is, but sure. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but um, I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. But like Elixir hasn't moved up in there for a while, and it's actually at the same level as Erlang, which is surprising. But I think a key result for all of us in this community would be trying to like move that in the right direction, you know, and like trying to get it up the ladder of like other programming languages. Because you know, 
there have been huge movements in other communities of other languages like TypeScript is like a runaway success right now for reasons I don't quite grok fully right now but um, you know and the same is true for like Kotlin and Swift and some of the other like languages that are a bit more of on the fringe and then have become a lot more mainstream even true for Rust hell I would think that like Elixir would be you know, up there with Rust, if we're talking about languages and things that you can do and real world things you can build, you know? So that's my, uh, that's my two cents. Mm. Two, two pence. Two, two pence. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Uh, well, I guess we should close out this episode for today. Um, Sophie, I want to say a big thank you uh, from both of us for being on the podcast today and um, for everything you're doing with the Elixir School and Flatiron and MPEX and beyond. So thank you for everything you're doing there and awesome to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. And I also apologize for the beginning bit where I... I mean, I'm very offended, so I will be <laughs> holding a grudge. Yes. Uh it's uh it's a curse of trying to say names when you there's like even like a tiny bit of pressure you know I just collapse maybe I shouldn't MC maybe this is what like this is resulting <laughs> just getting in, you know? in your own head yeah exactly um but yes we will have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes um as always if you like this episode wherever you're getting your podcast today go in rate us review us tell your friends about Elixir Talk again we want to make this community great. We want to spread the word about Elixir and, um, you know, we have, we have a back catalog now, which is weird. Um, how many, uh, we're at like 42 episodes, I think 40 something. 140. <laughs> so we, st- the, the, the key piece of information there is that we, Desmond, for some reason, started the episode count at 102. 101 right? was the prototype episode. But we, we totally screwed up the audio. So we had to actually have 102. Um, and then people were like, wow, you have 102 episodes when we started, but it was all a lie. Um, so we started out with lying to all of you. So there we go. It wasn't a lie. It was a, it was a marketing trick. Wow. This is what you get at the marketing committee. <laughs> eh? This is it. <laughs> Dirty tricks. I see. But anyway, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on our website, which is elixirtalk.com, or you can get us on Twitter uh, at twitter.com forward slash elixirtalk. And yeah, as always, we thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you next time, I guess. Keep elixiring. <laughs> you guys need a catchphrase, I think, to close out your episodes with. So we say keep elixiring, but we we always forget to prep the guests to say keep elixiring. So can we do this on three? You ready? I'm ready. One. Two, keep elixiring. Three. <laughs> Keep elixiring. <laughs> elixiring. Oh, we nailed it, you guys. That was great. We just totally nailed that. Yeah.